You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. On Wednesday, October 28th, 2020, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation held a hearing titled, Does Section 230's Sweeping Immunity Enable Big Tech Bad Behavior? We have convened this morning to continue the work of this committee to ensure that the internet remains a free and open space. And that the After a fairly sleepy existence since its passage in 1996, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has been a rarely talked about law that gives online platforms legal immunity for user-generated content. But in October of 2020, it was on center stage. Soon we will hear from the CEOs of three of the most prominent internet platforms. The hearing featured a real marquee lineup. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. During the hearing, Zuckerberg made statements that Democrats and Republicans could not find a middle ground on what content should be removed and what should be allowed. And Dorsey stated that they did not have a policy against misinformation, inferring that it was harmless. But if there is a violation of our terms of service, uh, we want to label it. They're, and still, they're still up. Do they violate your terms of service, Mr. Dorsey? We, we did not find those to violate our terms of service um, because we considered them saber-rattling, uh, which is, um, is part of the speech of world leaders in, in concert with other countries. In the days leading up to January 6th, Twitter was on fire with speech that at best fanned the flames of insurrection and at worst incited a coup. Either way, everyone knows what happened next. And it will stand in recess until the call of the chair. Boss. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. It was only on January 8th, two days after armed mobs stormed the U.S. Capitol, that platforms like Facebook and Twitter decided Trump's tweets were more than just saber-rattling. Relying on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act for immunity from civil suit, big tech companies launched a surprise attack on web content they deemed objectionable. Tonight, a deafening silence from the president's Twitter account in his waning days as commander-in-chief. Mark Zuckerberg Twitter, posting um, the dramatic move that they believe that the YouTube risks of YouTube is the, the latest media platform to block President Trump in a tweet. A YouTube insider account said it removed new content. Twitter permanently banned President Trump's account, wiping out his contact with 88 million followers and banned thousands of conservative social media accounts. Facebook banned Trump's account, quote, at least until his term was over. Google and Apple blocked the conservative-leaning social networking service Parler from their stores, and Amazon Web Services denied Parler access to its cloud network. Parler was ultimately shut down. The nation watched as large swaths of public officials lost the ability to speak on the internet, the place where just yesterday, political ideas were exchanged freely without oversight. To many, January 8th seemed two days, two years, or a decade too late. But nonetheless, the question remains. Should free speech be regulated online? I'm Nicole Turner-Lee, and you're listening to the Tech Tank Podcast. And today we're going to discuss, should free speech be regulated online? 
the case for Section 230 and more transparent content moderation. Since 1996, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has limited the liability of online platforms for content created by their users. Meanwhile, online misinformation about the 2020 election and the COVID-19 pandemic continues to endanger American lives and democratic institutions. Given these threats to public safety and democracy, what forms of speech should be protected online? And how should online platforms be held accountable for enforcing these rules? I'm so happy today to be joined by a distinguished panel of experts to discuss these questions and the goals of potential reforms to Section 230 and content moderation for that matter. We're joined today by Tom Wheeler, visiting fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings and former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under the Obama administration. John Morris, non-resident fellow in CTI and former senior executive at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration Department within the U.S. Department of Commerce. And David Johns, executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, whose mission is to end racism, homophobia, and LGBTQ bias and stigma. And before that, which is when I knew him, David was appointed the first executive director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans by President Obama as well. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. So, you know, I want to jump right into this conversation. I'd like to start with some level setting around why this conversation combining free speech and regulation are front and center. Tom, I'm going to start to you. You're a regular on the Tech Tank podcast. Can you provide some context on the historical importance of free speech before we even begin our discussion? And I say that to you from sociologist to my fellow historian. Well, thank you, uh, Nicole, uh, and it's great to be here um, with uh, John and, and David. You, you know, I mean, free speech was so important to democracy that the founders protected it from the government that that democracy created. I mean, that's how seminal the whole idea is in and historical context. And, you know, one of the interesting things that the topic we're dealing with today brings up is that we have in this country different concepts about free speech, even as compared to other Western democracies. And if we don't figure out for ourselves what we believe free speech, how free speech operates in the connected world, then we run the risk that, as I say again, in this connected world, others may end up making those kind of determinations for us. So this is a seminal kind of right and therefore an incredibly important discussion. Oh, I love that level setting, Tom, because I think you're so right. I don't think we would be talking about this issue if it wasn't at the core, right, of our inalienable rights as citizens to say what it is that we need to say. And John, you know, I want to turn over to you because I think we've tried to address what Tom is talking about, particularly as we see this new public square that uh, our dear friend Reed Hunt would talk about years ago. Um, some have argued that they're privatized now, the public square, and extracting value for shareholders primarily. 
And that is the reason why we put in place, to a certain extent, Section 230, um, to make sure that they could operate freely and have the ability to be less tethered by government regulation. Can you share with listeners, particularly those that are unfamiliar with Section 230, what it is exactly and how it applies to what Tom is speaking about in terms of this unfettered discourse? Sure. Thanks very much for having me, Nicole. Um, Section 230 provides two pretty critical legal protections to any website or platform that allows users to post comments or videos or other content. So first, Section 230 says that websites cannot be held liable as if they were the publisher of a user's comment. And second, Section 230 says that websites are also protected if they decide to remove those comments because the comments are obscene or violent or harassing or otherwise objectionable. So let me briefly unpack the two protections I just identified. Um, You know, in the offline world, the Washington Post is held to be liable for defamation if it publishes in its print newspaper Um, something that is defamatory in a letter to the editor. The Post only publishes, what, five or ten letters every day, and they have editors and lawyers who can review each letter carefully. But things are very different in the online environment. On Facebook, users make more than three million posts every minute. And over on YouTube, they upload 500 hours of video every minute. If those websites had the same liability as the Washington Post, they would never have been created in the first place. So Section 230 provides the protections that allow websites to carry user-generated content. Uh, On the flip side, though, if those websites could be sued any time they removed a post or a video, then they would be more hesitant to remove offensive content. So Section 230 tries to encourage Um, kind of socially responsible operation of a website by protecting websites when they do decide to remove objectionable content. And overall, this legal system has created um, tremendous value for our society and tremendous ability for people to go online and express themselves and debate things in, as you say, a a new public square, an online public square. Um, But it also now is kind of beginning to create some friction and concerns because content that some people in the last political campaign thought was offensive or even racist was being taken down um, and the other, the people who were posting it were offended or upset by the fact that it was being taken down. So it, it really, we're seeing some tension here, but I think fundamentally Section 230 helps to promote a vibrant um, discourse online but it also helps to encourage um, platforms to be responsible and to try to make sure we don't have a lot of hate speech online. We don't have misinformation and disinformation. So it's part of the solution, I think, not really part of the problem. There are absolutely online problems, um, but I think that there are more focused ways to address those online problems. 
No, I appreciate, you know, just that thorough, you know, explanation, John, because we often hear these words thrown around. And in policy, we assume that people know what we're talking about. Before I go to David, Tom, did you want to jump in and just terms of just framing the Section 230 before we get into whether or not it's actually a useful tool going forward? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that the um, and, and I agree with what John said. I mean, we've got to look at it in, in, in two parts, um, you know, Section 230 C2. Um, is the uh, ability to not have liability when you make an editorial decision. Section 230C1, which immediately precedes it, uh, absolves the platforms or has been interpreted to absolve the platforms of the necessity to make that editorial decision. And therein is the rub. And, And I think what's happened is that the um, the platform companies, the social media platforms, have had the great good fortune to come of age in a anti-regulatory era um, in which people did not want to, uh, to, to, to get involved with, with policy. And when they did, as is the case of 230, they wrote it in a very rigid way that didn't allow much discretion in its interpretation going forward. And the challenge that we have now is how are we going to reflect that 25 years ago in 1996, when Section 230 was written, um, the online world was a very different world than it is today. And how do we reflect today's new realities? Yeah, you know, Tom and I were talking this morning. You know, some of you may not be aware of this who are listening, but on this day today, on February 8th, is the uh, anniversary of the Communications Act. So I'm thinking about it, Tom, even though you gave me some really good intel about the date being a little bit off. Here we are, you know, Communications Act, Section 230, and stronger, larger platforms that are now controlling conversation in some way or form. So thank you both for that clarification. David, I want to bring you in. You know, January 6th is a date that will forever be pressed into the history books and in the minds of millions of Americans and global citizens that watched that coup d'etat of the Capitol office building. I mean, first, as a fellow person of color, talk to me about your initial reactions to what you witnessed. And then second, as a person within and representing the LGBTQ community, I want to hear what other thoughts crossed your mind, my friend. Yeah, friend, um, <clears throat> words matter and there is power and precision. Uh, and so beyond being a person of color, I'm black. Uh, I am also a same gender loving man. Uh, I don't use the term gay because gay often evokes thoughts about sex and salaciousness. Uh, and uh, seldom is it the case that conversations about our sexual identity, um, gender orientation or expression are anchored in love. Um, And when I think about what happened uh, at the insurrection, to have watched um, evidence of uh, insurrectionists, uh, uh, people who were uh, intentional in wanting to disrupt uh, democracy and the peaceful transfer of power that has existed in our country heretofore, um, and to watch them be aided um, by officers who took an oath to try and protect some of the very members who um, are still dealing with the psychological uh, terror um, that they experienced on that day uh, doesn't sit well with me. Um, and, and to your question about those of us who have intersectional identities, um, I'm thinking a lot about 
um, conversations that members, uh, new members have uh, been able to initiate. Mondaire, um, James, Congressman Mondaire, um, recently presided over the Senate and as, and as such as the first uh, openly gay, black or same gender loving man uh, to have done so, right? Um, uh, we elected uh, so many uh, LGBTQIA uh, elected officials at the federal level and, and, and at every other level uh, most recently. Um, and, and I think about the significance of, of Kamala Harris being elected uh, to the highest office of, of the land as our vice president. And I am saddened that these moments that should be um, celebrated, that we should be reveling in, are overshadowed by a small but powerful group of folks who are doing their damnness to destroy uh, the very institutions that have allowed us to grow into the nation uh, that has been able to accomplish these things that are worth celebrating. Yeah, you know, you got me thinking as well. I mean, it was a very interesting time, and I'm sure Tom and John could also chime in. Something that we've never seen in history before, and I just have it, memories of just talking to my children about them as well. And um, obviously, that's the theme of another podcast on how we got there. But I, I do appreciate what David is saying, Tom and John, and for each of you, I just want to throw this out there. Before we get into the regulatory um, discussion in terms of, you know, whether or not Section 230 is viable, et cetera, I want to point out what Tom said and what, John, you've also indicated. This is a conversation about immunity and liability, right? But it's also a conversation around free versus hate speech or misinformation for that matter. And it's a confrontation around the extent to which we can use these platforms to become ideologues. So I would love for you know one of you to chime in on this. Maybe we'll start with you, Tom. When you hear what David is sharing and you think about you know your historical level setting and where we are with free online speech, you know what are these trade-offs that we're making, right? Because I think before we begin to talk about the regulatory discussion, we have to know what we're actually trying to solve. You know, Nicole, you use the right you use the right word. We're we're constantly making trade-offs in a democratic society. You know, my, my father used to teach me that I had the right to swing my fist wherever I wanted until it began to approach his nose. <laughs> and I think we need to think about things in that way. That it's mm -hmm. the consequences of speech that are its differentiations. And that at the root of determining those consequences is the question of whether you're infringing on the rights of others or the public interest. And, um, and, and the challenge that we have had in the new social media platform environment is that the business model of the companies, the platform companies, avoids making that kind of a determination about consequences in favor of curating for cash. Hmm. And that's what we have to work our way through with this issue. Okay, David? What about you? I mean, do you see this? And I mean, I know you and I have had conversations prior to January 6th in terms of just some challenges that your organization had getting content, um, you know, up online or moderated in an equitable way. But you want to comment on that? Or is this a consequence of free speech and free being? Uh, most definitely. I think that too often we have conversations about free speech without acknowledgement for one, 
what's not included, <laughs> right, or not uh, uh, permissible based on the uh, the way that it's been drafted. Um, and then the need to protect that with what was previously mentioned, I believe, by John, possibly by Tom, around protection of civil and or social rights uh, or well-being. Free speech does not include initiating actions that would harm others. And the challenge is that we're, we're not having or at least have not gotten in front of conversation about what that means in a space where people have access to uh, language and can use language in ways that would cause harm to others. So two points I think are relevant in this case. Um, last year, uh, there were more reported deaths of Black trans women than there have been in any year since that data has been collected and reported. Um, we also lost last year, tragically, Monica Roberts, the trans griot who took it upon herself to report that data because still too often police departments and other frontline workers do not accurate, accurately report on violence of trans and non-binary members of our communities. I'm um, talking in the, the, the royal we um, in this context. Um, and last year, there were appointed ads targeting Black trans folks online. And um, there, Section 230 already, uh, per the statute that is enshrined as codified in law, allows platforms to be able to remove that content. And what we have experienced in, in just the last eight months is that conversations on the Hill about potential changes to Section 230 cause platforms to start to lean the other way. And so just this past weekend, uh, Sunday, um, uh, February 7th, was National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day. HIV AIDS is something that disproportionately still uh, impacts Black communities, not just Black queer communities, but Black communities um, more generally. And we found it difficult as an advocacy organization to post content advocating for increasing awareness around this very fact because of concerns around, again, additional changes to Section 230. Um, and so all of this to say that it's important for civil rights organizations, nonprofit organizations, uh, organizations that don't have the capital um, of some well-funded white supremacist organizations to be able to leverage um, the, the, the internet, uh, digital platforms, to be able to do the work that we do that's about social justice, that's about making sure that people are and feel safe. And we have to be mindful of the unintended consequences of changing Section 230 in particular and or not being thoughtful about what free speech means. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry. Did somebody else want to jump in? Yeah, yep, go Nicole, ahead, let me let me jump in and, and just build on um, what David has said. And I totally agree with um, what he's saying about the concern about unintended consequences. And I mean, it is critical that that anything we do in this area has to be has to be very thought through, very well thought through. It's also important in the conversation to step back and to recognize that, you know, we all have a um a, a real commitment to free speech, but there is also what is protected by the First Amendment. And that's a different thing. The First Amendment is primarily um, aimed at um, restricting the government's ability to restrict speech. And so platforms, online platforms themselves have free speech rights under the First Amendment. And to some extent, um, the Section 230 kind of helps protect those free speech rights because if, in fact, 
a platform doesn't want to be carrying an anti-trans joke, um, then it actually has a constitutional right not to carry that joke. And so any actions that Congress takes to that would limit the ability of um, a platform to take off offensive speech that the platform wanted to take off would have constitutional issues. So kind of as we converse here, we need to kind of be aware, or at least the audience should be aware, that we have a larger commitment in this country to free expression and then a more focused um, commitment under the First Amendment to prevent the government from interfering with that free expression. Yeah, oh, I love John, that distinction. John, yeah, go ahead, Tom. John, yeah, this is, this is I mean, great. The, the problem is that the platforms have avoided exercising that right for the most part because if they can um, deliver content, the more outrageous, the better the more attention they can get from their users that keep them online, that means the more ads they can sell to them, that means they make more money. And it is, it appears at least, that it is more profitable to be untruthful, unrespecting, um, and, and blasphemous uh, online than it is to be balanced and worried about uh, the veracity of what you're delivering. So, Tom, I, I, I totally agree that that platforms, especially a year or two ago, were very, very slow to take action to t against some speech that I certainly would have preferred to have been taken down. Um, um, but I actually think the last couple of years have been somewhat therapeutic. I'm not saying that they're not still significant problems online, but, but I think that some of the online platforms have a better understanding of the critical uh, impact that that disinformation that 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 hateful speech can have online and so um, so absolutely we should be um, looking for ways to um, you know strongly encourage strong um, moderation of offensive speech but we need to do it in a way that still of course as as I know you would agree respects the first amendment and absolutely. and that's the hard thing to do absolutely yeah i mean this yeah is, no and i agree this, yeah, go ahead Tom. this is not a this is not a government gets to make the decisions this was the this was the fallacy in donald trump's trying to to empower the federal communications commission to be uh, some kind of truth police but I think that yeah. there are ways, and, and I don't want to take you down a, another path here, Nicole, but I think that there are ways that we can look to, for instance, the standard setting process that brought us the technologies of the internet, a collective, voluntary establishment of non-governmental standards and how we can use that similar a process similar to that to um, establish behavioral expectations for the platforms, and so that everybody knows. Okay, here's what's expected. We 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 you know they used to do this 
Editors used to make these judgments in newspapers and television shows. There are no editors. There are no circuit breakers, if you will, uh, in the digital environment. So I want to talk about that, though, Tom, because what are you suggesting, and and David and John, I'm going to come to you next, what are you suggesting then with Section 230? Are you saying we should just go towards the standard-setting body to be the arbiter of that truth, or do you think we should have some forms of Section 230 still in place? Section 230C2, the ability to make editorial judgments, should be sacrosanct. Mm. Um, Mm. But Section 230C1, there needs to be a level of expectation, of responsibility, and accountability um, that will get you to the exercising of the editorial decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. David, I want to come over to you on that. I mean, I know you have said that Section 230, in many respects, is almost like a buffer, right? Because without it, the extent to which Groups like yours could have some level of, you know, where companies don't have to figure out what kind of liability or scrutiny they'll be under. You need something that's there. I mean, obviously, as we're talking about in this conversation, the same Section 230 applies to the conservatives as it does the liberals, the white supremacists as it does Black Lives Matter. And so, David, I would like to hear a little bit more of what you're thinking about, particularly that coalition letter with regards to keeping Section 230, given the fact that it opens up a wild west of editorial discretion in the content moderation space. So I want to push back on a part of the framing, uh, Nicole, and you know that I love you, which is why I can do this. Black folks, uh, F-O-L-X, not K-S, trans, queer, non-binary, Black people and people of color, um, and those of us who do Um, racial equity, social justice, civil rights work, do not have access to the same language that white supremacists do when they are um, exercising um, things that we understand as hate speech or the kinds of um, uh, suggestions, uh, provocations uh, that lead to uh, what we saw in Charlottesville uh, what we see uh, well, uh, far too frequently um, uh, in our community. Um, and I just want to be clear about that, right? It is, it is, we should not for a second think that the playing field is level or even um, in that regard. Um, and for that reason, Section 230 is important to provide cover to platforms um, and those who have editorial privilege who might otherwise fear uh, lawsuits from white supremacists who um, who believe that we are operating in the wild, wild west, um, when that is not where we are, not not now, not in this moment. Um, and so uh, I agree um, that it is incredibly important to protect the existing um, cover um, that Section 230 provides uh, around editorial judgment and discretion, and more needs to be done. And, 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 and I believe that a lot of this d- does not require um, a statutory change, but in praxis, the space where this this conversation we're having about theory meets practice, more needs to be done to support the accountability that was just mentioned, um, such that platforms are doing more, uh, such that folks are relying on artificial intelligence to make the, these kinds of decisions for the reason that I mentioned when I started this intervention, um, and that there is more balance with regard to um, free speech and protection of uh, social civil rights and well-being. 
Well, you know, before I go to John, I just want to push a little bit on what you're saying. And David, we never disagree. I always probably just get it wrong because, you know, you are the expert <laughs> in certain things. And I, I always take the David John's advice. But listen, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit, though, and, and ask you this question though, about content moderation in terms of getting to this space. And then, John, I want you to come back and tell me where you think Section 230 falls. I mean, are we at a space where we can actually have content moderation from companies that are not necessarily inclusive and representative of different populations? Do you feel that you have enough cover on that side, David, when it comes to your content? Uh, uh, so I'm laughing because uh, I received the question in its fullness. And uh, the reality is that we should not be having conversations in the year 2021 uh, about whether or not diversity with a capital D is important. What we know, what industries have demonstrated time and time again is that uh, when companies and teams are diverse, uh, their, their bottom line increases, efficiency increases, um, everybody wins. Um, and it is sadly still the case that uh, while we call them tech companies, I'll just talk about those that are based in Silicon Valley while acknowledging that it's impossible to be a company in our global economy without um, relying heavily upon technology. So we have to work through what this means in application. Um, but there's still a whole lot of work to do to ensure that those who are developing artificial intelligence um, uh, technology that are responsible for the systems um, that would otherwise uh, provide for editorial judgment or that would lead toward accountability when, when, when folks are operating in ways that are inconsistent with policies. I think in this moment, I want to acknowledge that we're sort of dancing around the fact that he who shall not be named was kicked off of Twitter uh, at one of the, the very last hours, right? And that had everything to do with the insurrection that we saw. And, and if it were not for Section 230, I don't know if they would have taken that action. And so your specific question is, um, are we good on that front? The answer is no. Mm. Um, there needs to be more um, 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 uh, people of color, Black people, um, ethical um, data scientists who are involved in um, setting up these systems and moderating these processes, um, uh, uh, period, full stop. And while we're still working uh, to ensure that uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, company leaders hold themselves accountable by tying this to their um, their bottom lines uh, as well. Uh, we still have to also push to ensure that the systems that are already in place are working um, to the best of their abilities. No, I love this. So, John, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You know, Tom has talked about voluntary standard setting of behavioral equivalent. You know, clearly David is contextualizing the application of Section 230 within what we live in now, our experience, our lived experiences now, particularly those of certain groups, and being able to advance it in an equitable framework. Where do you stand on Section 230? Well, I mean, let me first say that I, I completely agree with David on the need for greater diversity in um, within the companies. Um, I mean, it's, it's clear if you go outside of the United States that companies have an even harder time understanding um, overseas communities um, and cultures to even be able to moderate at all. And I mean, they're not even doing a great job in the United States, but outside it's even even worse. And I also totally agree with Tom that more needs to be done, that um, that that kind of more responsibility on the part of the companies is what we need to move to. The question is really kind of how do we do it? On your specific question, what do I think about Section 230? I think that um, it, it is a critical law, both C1 and C2, both provisions of it are critical. Um, and 
you know, I want to kind of focus the conversation, but also ask policymakers to focus their responses on on what problem are we really trying to solve? Now, obviously, there's not a single problem. There's a lot of different problems. There's hate speech. There's misinformation. There's defamation. There's all kinds of different things. And and my concern with a lot of the proposals up on Capitol Hill, and perhaps even with what um, Tom suggested earlier um, in this in this podcast. Is that is that there we're trying to solve problems that show up on literally you know a few thousand major websites, but we're doing it. Congress is proposing to do with it do it by by making changes that protect tens or hundreds of millions of websites that. Um, that allow user content to be posted and that there's not rampant problems on. And that ranges from small businesses that allow comments on their products from, from customers. They're protected by Section 230. That includes um, political parties, small political parties that allow um, their their members to to discuss. They're protected by Section 230. So I'm really concerned about not really focusing on what problem are we trying to solve, but looking to 230 as a solution to a lot of social problems online. So, I mean, I do think that there are some serious social and moral issues in our society that, you know, maybe some small amendments to 230 would help, but I actually think Congress should be looking at more focused amendments. If there's a concern about, for example, trans moderation practices, then we can have direct obligations on major platforms to um, be more transparent about their moderation. Um, and that's just one example. So, I mean, I think overall 230 um, still is is a vital um, a, a vital protection, set of protections for the ability of um, people online to express themselves. Well, I I think, and then Tom, I want to jump to you because I think, um, John, in many respects, I think this also gives cover for what Tom is talking about, though, right? Because you do have on the Hill, you have this overwhelming um, consensus, I think, on both sides of the aisle, whether it's Eshoo and Malinowski, Schatz and Thune, Blumenthal and Graham, you know, between, you know, the Thune and, and Schatz, Pact Act or the Earn It Act, that, that people want to do something, right? And I do agree with you. That they're trying to do something within the guise of what I hear you saying of the framework, because you also want to allow the innovation to sort of uh, flourish. But I have heard, Tom, about carve-outs, right? In terms of let's carve this out, let's prohibit, as we did with uh, sex traffickers and uh, child pornography, hate speech extremists. At the end of the day, I want to kind of revisit what your proposal is. I mean, how do you correlate your proposal to this, this bucket of uh, legislative drafts that are coming out that are trying to fix, you know, in other words, what John and David have said is pretty much the problem <laughs> that perhaps may not be fixed, you know? Well, let's, let's remember, let's remember, Nicole, we got into this whole situation because it's, it was the Communications Decency Act, which was the trigger for all of this, and that the court, Supreme Court, then subsequently threw out the, well, government can make decisions as to um, what's uh, decent or indecent? I think, but but I think there's a broader issue here, um, and and that and that section two thirty is, as everybody has discussed, a very complex issue for which there is no simple solution. But we mislead people 
if we think that the solution to this broader question of content is as simple as who bears liability. It, you know, if we are going to count on, um, on lawsuits, um, it's an inefficient, non-productive way of figuring out um, uh, this question. There is a um, reality that, it, that it has existed, however, for the last decade or more that we've watched happen and ignored that affects and creates the environment in which this kind of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, hate speech, etc., can exist. One, I talked before about curating. An economic model has been built to curate for cash rather than veracity and balance. Secondly, the economic model has done what the economists call externalizing costs. Rather than bearing the cost inside the company of making editorial judgments um, that are protected by 230C2, um, they say, oh, screw it, let's just put all those, we, we won't do that, and society can bear the costs, whether it's individual groups or, or whatever. The third thing is there's a lack of competition. That these platforms, you know, John talked about thousands of platforms. The fact of the matter is that, you know, Facebook, uh, YouTube, a handful of others have billions of users and that there is a lack of competition because of their monopoly practices that cuts down and eliminates a diversity of voices. You get the information Facebook determines you're going to get, period. You have no ability to turn the channel, if you will. And lastly, as we've been talking all along, we have totally failed to establish what are behavioral expectations. John talks about transparency. Spot on. What are the, you know, the, the decisions that get made inside these algorithms, first of all, they're editorial decisions, so they're protected, but they are made in secret and then they are delivered in secret. You know, the editorial decision the New York Times make, the editorial decision Fox News makes, you and I know about it. The editorial decisions these make are far from transparent. They're made in secret, delivered to a secret subset. And there needs to be some structure where we create some kind of behavioral expectations. But it is the entirety of all of these things happening that has created this reality, not just the liability question. Yeah, I mean, you've taken Section 230 to the ultimate degree, Tom. I mean, that's sort of what I've actually thought about it, too. And um, David and John, I want you to chime in. I mean, there is a media diversity issue, like the diversity of voices. Where do people like David's folks go if they cannot have an open platform on privatized public squares? And then there's this conversation in terms of algorithmic amplification, the extent to which the models and the technical cadence itself actually continues to perpetuate those type of filter bubbles that we're seeing that keep people polarized and amplifying and 
intensify their engagements. I mean, for John and, and David, I mean, this is a big deal. This goes beyond just the beginnings of whether or not we should repeal or replace an existing law. How do you think we should be approaching this going forward? Do we need um, Klobuchar? This came out last week with the Safe Tech Act, which I think is trying to get at the content question by, you know, making sure that it's applying to particular content buckets and also ensuring that there's compliance with civil rights. But really would like to pivot to David and you, John, around, you know, what do we do with this entirety of the problem to make sure it's more palatable for a regulatory solution? Uh, I'm happy to jump in. Um, You know, I, I, I think, you know, Tom and I are actually probably in violent agreement on an awful lot of, um, of, of what oh, we're talking shucks, about. Oh, shucks, I invited you because I thought you'd be different. No, kidding. Um, I, I mean, you know, I think, I think, I, I think that, that there's, you know, there, there are very serious competition issues and Section 230 is not a, a bar to pursuing those issues, um, those concerns. And I also do think that, you know, Tom's, you know, kind of suggestion, as long as it's a voluntary um, process to develop standards for moderation, I think there's a lot that we can do and a lot that the um, ecosystem is beginning to work on. And so I think there is, there's an awful lot that we need to do. Um, But I, I mean, I also do think that that, you know, at the end of the day, it is, you know, a, a lot of the problems are in a some a, a very small number of platforms. Um, and we need to make sure that in fixing those problems, um, we don't inadvertently make it harder for new competitors to arise. Because I could not agree more with Tom that what we really need is we need up and coming companies to try to knock off um, the Facebooks and the Googles and the Twitters of the world, just like we had in the in the first 10 or years of, of really the commercial internet, you know, we had we had a social network that kind of was the top network for a year or two or three, and then they got knocked off by the next up-and-coming um, competitor, and 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 we really do need to try to find ways to to re-inject um, competition in the in the um, internet ecosphere. We also need to solve some other problems that Congress has actually worked a great deal on, like consumer privacy. If we um, if we if we really can pass a strong privacy bill that uh, that um, would govern. Um, the use of personal data online, we would begin to start changing some business models up on the hill that I think Tom correctly points to as as problematic. And so, I mean, this is a multifaceted problem. This is not about liability, and it shouldn't just be about Section 230. It should be about how do we want to have our entire ecosystem moving forward. And personally, you know, I thought the internet was wonderful because it allowed us to move away from just having ABC and NBC and CBS and then Fox as our sources of information. Um, we we then moved to a huge diversity of sources of information, but now we're moving back to having Facebook and Twitter and a couple of others as the main sources. And so how can we re-inject the broader diversity of, of um, communications online should be one of the goals that we as a society need to grapple with. 
And as we do that, I think it's important for us to leverage other existing tools and resources. So the previous administration attempted to outlaw the use of uh, an application of uh, critical race theory, um, uh, lessons that we have learned from uh, Black feminists around uh, intersectionality, um, ways for us to think about um, the lived experience of people, the, the, the vast majority of the plurality of Americans uh, who have um, multiply marginalized identities. Um, all of these tools should be leveraged as we do this work, um, as we develop new uh, and ethical ways of talking with one another, as we um, uh, increase diversity of uh, information and resources and share um, some of what um, uh, our penchant for capitalism has allowed to grow into the monopoly that exists um, now. This whole conversation, and you both might remember this, reminds me when um, the Aspen Institute did the Information Democracy Report and the Future of Communications. I think Tom and John, you remember Michael Powell, I think, chaired that committee. And this was like in early 2000s, where we were similarly having these conversations. The Knight Foundation had come out pretty strong about helping to define what we look like with a media economy. I mean, before I go to David on this, I want to stay on the legislative piece. I mean, do you both have hope for any of these bills that are out there? I mean, do you, if you could actually pick one that you think is going in the right direction based on the complexity of the challenge of Section 230, would it be Eshu, Schatz, Blumenthal's, Klobuchar's? Or do you think we just have to keep having them like that we're doing in privacy, keep building upon them until we get one right? Well, my, my my answer to that is that I would suggest that n- none of the bills are really on the right track, but a number of the bills have some interesting um, ideas that may be helpful. I mean, the Klobuchar-Warner bill, um, you know, w- one thing it does that I think is certainly worth considering is, is, is saying that content that you're paid to carry – um, shouldn't be treated the same as content that you, just normal users post. And so if I'm paid to carry something, I, I as a platform should have a higher level of um, responsibility for anything that's paid. So that's an example of a, of a good idea coming out of Congress. Um, but, um, but I think we really need to step back and try to put all these ideas together um, and think them through very carefully to make sure we avoid the unintended consequences we've been discussing. Yeah, I've got concerns around financial relationships with users um, that that could uh, be the re- a result of some of the things that are in the language. Um, but yes, the devil's in the details. Let's just say that. Yeah, Tom, any particular bill that you have a leaning towards, or are you sticking to your answer? Oh, they're definitely all beginnings <laughs> of the conversation, um, and and uh, and you know, kudos to everybody that's been trying to wrestle with this. I think we've just shown in the last few minutes how difficult that question is. But I don't think we're at a point of saying it's this bill or that bill. I like John's idea very much that there are pieces of each that are worthwhile. And why do you think that's the case? because I don't think anybody has put together a clean, singular package. And as I said a minute ago, I think that we make a mistake if we say that it is all, the only issue here is whether you should be able to file suits, that that's not the way to work our way through the question of what is 
appropriate content in an online world. And, and, and it's all, there's also a problem that that the bill, in terms of talking about the bills, is that the bills are often trying to solve different problems. And they're all problems that, you know, need solving. And the PACT Act certainly, um, you know, was talking about transparency. Um, and, and other acts are focused on on child abuse um, material and things like that. So they're, they're different problems, but they're kind of all rushing to Section 230 as the solution when we should really identify the separate problems that we're trying to solve and figure out what is the best solution for that particular problem. Tom, is there a role for media literacy for the public? I mean, does that play a role in addressing some parts of this problem? I mean, of course, Nicole. I mean, you know, if you, what what we've done for the last 150 years is society has outsourced the curation of information to editors who had an economic incentive to give balanced and truthful information. That outsourcing doesn't work anymore because the editors, the algorithms now have an incentive to feed out information regardless of its validity. So we all need to become our own curators of information. We all need to be better prepared to make our own judgments, but we need to insist as a public that we are given the choices amongst various pieces of information. And as John has said, the non-competitive structure that exists today in the social media world denies consumers the, ab- the ability to make that kind of comparative judgment. John, what about you? Your thoughts? I, I absolutely think that we need more media literacy within the public, within the entire educational system. I mean, unfortunately, over the last few decades, we have not been really keeping our public education system as vibrant and strong as it should be. And so folks are coming out of school, not really even themselves being able to tell the difference when when someone is saying something that's um, online that really they should take with a grain of salt. So I absolutely think that media literacy is a is a critical part of our societal solution to a lot of these issues, to some of these issues. David, your thoughts on the need for more media literacy? Um, I, as the as a former elementary school educator, I think a lot about the literacy question. Um, it is very much the case that uh, federal policy could be incentivizing institutions of higher education, in particular um, uh, colleges that train teachers, um, to ensure that all uh, pre-K through 12 uh, educators are more media savvy um, and have literacy, media literacy themselves so that they can then teach that to um, their students. Um, we also have seen a divestment in um, journalism and the investment in journalism um, again, both from an institution of higher education perspective, but also when we think about the shift from print media uh, to digital and online media. Um, and so we should be doing more um, to ensure that our community, um, the country, um, is more media literate um, and media savvy. 
So we wouldn't be a policy podcast if we didn't ask this final question of everyone. So I'm going to ask it, which is, what do we see this administration doing in the next year on this issue? As I think all of you mentioned, this is a complicated issue, but there's got to be some light at the end of the tunnel, at least. John, let me go to you first. What do you see the Biden-Harris administration doing on Section 230, if anything? We know what Congress wants to do, but do we see any action on their part? I, I, I hope so. What I what I would urge the administration to do is to convene a task force to really look at these hard issues um, over a period of time, over a year, over six months at least, um, and come up with very careful proposals that have been publicly vetted and that the task force can receive input on to really think through how do we solve these problems. And that task force can look at Section 230, but it can look at a lot of other tools as well to um, make steps that can improve and address some of the issues we've been discussing. Tom, what about you? What do we see the Biden-Harris administration doing on this issue going forward? I think I think John's suggestion is is an excellent one, but I think we also have to recognize that we're in the midst of multiple existential crises that have been dumped on the resolute desk in the in the Oval Office, and that and that frankly, it's awful hard um, in the midst of. 27 million COVID cases and almost half a million deaths to put Section 230 on the same plane. Yes, it needs to be dealt with, but let's understand that there are existential crises as well. It doesn't mean that things shouldn't be going on, there shouldn't be a task force, but I think we need to be realistic in terms of our expectations for what we expect the president of the United States to put his arms around and put his weight behind. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Tom. And I think that there's so many things, and you and I have spoken about this and you've written for it on, uh, written about it on Tech Tank, that this existential threats around the pandemic are really important. David, what do you see the Biden-Harris administration doing on this issue? And how does this relate to their focus on racial equity? Yeah, I don't want to be realistic if realistic means that we do what has happened heretofore. Uh, it should be lost on no one that a significant proportion of the deaths um, uh, uh, associated with the novel coronavirus are because of the misinformation campaigns that were targeting uh, poor, uh, low-income, uh, overstressed um, communities. Um, and so I want to celebrate the ability to talk and chew gum at the same time and uh, look forward to this administration continuing to work collaboratively with experts um, like those of us who are having this conversation to ensure that we uh, pass policies that ensure everyone's safety um, holistically. I do agree with all of you. Thank you. That obviously there has to be a responsible framework and discussion that comes out of this. And perhaps the Biden administration may even consider with all the things on their plate, an advisory commission to even look closely at what this new uh, set of values and new rules of the road actually look like going forward. You have been listening to Tech Tank, a podcast of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Myself and uh, my co-host, Daryl West, want to tell you to keep listening to us and subscribe to the podcast via Apple, Spotify, and Acast. We are the place to discuss issues related to current events in tech and telecommunications policy, as well as those issues that have not yet been imagined. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Tom. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, John. Thank you. And thank you, David. 
I think I'm supposed to say thank you now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.